copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and open it to Psalm 96. That's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 96. This is what the inspired writer says through the Holy Spirit to the church, to us this morning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Let us pray. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all your works shall praise your name in earth and sky and sea. Father, these things are too wonderful to tell, too wonderful for a man like me to be able to proclaim to your people, Father. So please help me. Please help me, Father, to be faithful to your word and to be clear and bold in proclaiming such things. And I pray that you will help your people, Father. Please help your people to hear with ears of faith, with humble hearts of obedience, that we may rejoice together in the glory of God. Speak to us, I pray, Father. Convict the sinner, Father. Strengthen the saints. And magnify the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read this morning already, Psalm 96 is, is clearly about worship, worshiping God. But what does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to worship? Can, we, can worship be simply reduced to singing songs or to performing religious acts? Is, is worship simply coming to church on Sunday morning or, or is it a lifestyle? Well, worship is in part all of these things, and we all know that. 
It's in part all, all of these things, but it is also much more, isn't it? It is much more. And this morning, Psalm 96 gives us a larger vision of worship, and it invites us to take part of it. And specifically, the psalmist gives us three characteristics of worship. Number one, worship is mission-minded, verses 1 to 3. Number two, worship is God-centered, in verses 4 through 9. And number three, worship is future-oriented, verses 10 to 13. So three characteristics of worship, which I pray and trust will be encouraging for us as a church as we seek to glorify God in Christ. So we begin, begin first in verses 1 to 3, where we see that worship is mission-minded. From the start, we notice that the worship of God in Psalm 96 is not limited to any single group of people. Worship in Psalm 96 has a global scope. Look in the text with me. Verse 1 Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 3, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You see, worship is global. And the second thing we notice from the text is that worship is not an option, but a command. Notice the commanding force in these verses. Sing to the Lord. Tell of His salvation. Declare His glory. Ascribe to the Lord. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. Worship the Lord. You see, Psalm 96 drives us with force to worship God. Worship is a global command. All the nations of the earth are called and commanded to worship God. And the question before us now is, how do the nations worship God? What does worshiping God look like according to Psalm 96? We notice first how the verbs or commands parallel each other. In verse 1 and 2. Look there in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. And then in verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. So sing and tell. You see the singing in verse 1 and the telling in verse 2 are one and the same. They mirror each other. And that helps us to make the connection between these two verses. If singing and telling are one, then the new song that we sing in verse 1 and the salvation that we proclaim in verse 2 are also the same. They mirror each other. So what is the new song in verse 1 that we sing? Well, it is a song about the salvation of God, verse 2. This new song stands in the line of previous songs in the Scriptures that celebrate the salvation of God. Think of Exodus 15, right after God's deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. 
Exodus 15. What do Moses and the people do right after the Exodus? If you remember, they sing. They sing. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? You see, the people respond to God's salvation with a song. And you see that throughout the scriptures. So think back with me through the Old Testament for a minute. We see how the prophets pick up the Exodus as a picture of God's future salvation, which Isaiah describes as a new work of God. Isaiah 43, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing, the Lord says. And how will the Lord accomplish this new work of salvation? Well, the prophets again, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, they tell us that God will do this new work of salvation through a new covenant, a covenant of peace. So you see that there's a sort of thread in the Old Testament of references to God's future salvation as a new work which is distinct from the old. It is not the old 2.0, it is new. But that is not all. The prophet Isaiah, again, puts all these things together, the new work of God, the new covenant, and applies them not only to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth, which he envisions doing what? Singing a new song. Isaiah 42.10. Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing His praises from the ends of the earth. So we bring it back to Psalm 96 verse 1. And we ask, what is this new song that the entire earth is summoned to sing? Well, friends, it is the song that tells of God's promised salvation in the new covenant. It is the song that proclaims God's salvation in the gospel. You see, the song is new not because it is creative or inventive. It is new because God's salvation is new. God has accomplished what He promised through the mouth of the prophets by sending His only begotten Son, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life of obedience to God's will, to shed his blood and die for sin and to take his life up again from the dead that he may secure salvation for God's people. Friends, God has accomplished salvation in Jesus Christ so that everyone who trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Fullness of joy like Rachel read in Psalm 16. Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. That's what Christ has accomplished for us. Salvation. And if you are without Christ this morning, friend, I pray and hope that as you hear the command to worship God in Psalm 96, that you will turn from sin and turn to Christ and believe in Him that He is able to save you. He has accomplished salvation for you. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the promised salvation of God. 
So turn to Jesus. He is able to save you. We also see that God's salvation in verse 2 then is described in verse 3 as God's marvelous works. Look there in verse 3 with me. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Notice here that to tell of God's salvation means to declare God's glory. You see, it is in His work of salvation that God reveals His glory. So if you want to see the glory of God, or if you want to know God, then you must look to the cross. You must look to Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And that is why we want to be a church that is about the gospel, friends. We can be about a hundred things, but we want to be about the gospel because it is in the gospel that God reveals Himself and glorifies Himself among His people. So then worship is not merely contemplative, but declarative. Worship is not inward-focused, but looks outwardly to proclaim the salvation of God. To whom? To the nations, the psalmist says. Declare His glory among the nations. You see, worship is mission-minded because all the nations are commanded to worship God. And therefore, God's people are sent out to declare God's marvelous works throughout the earth. We see this in the New Testament. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says in Romans 10. But then he asks, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless, unless they are sent? And friends, I, as I was preparing this week, I couldn't but pray on my knees that one day God may be kind and He may call maybe one of us in this room this morning to go and to take the gospel to those who have never heard about Christ before. You probably know these numbers, but there are about 16,000 people groups on the earth. And more than 7,000 of them have no gospel witness this morning. 7,000, friends. That is millions of people going to sleep and waking up every morning without God and without hope in the world. And they will do the same thing today and tomorrow and the next day. And they will live their entire lives without ever hearing about God's salvation unless some of us go. And I'm not talking about the church down the road or the church on the other side of town. I'm talking about us, Midtown Baptist Church. They will never hear of God's salvation unless some of us go. So let me challenge you with this. Have you, have you ever asked God, is it me, Lord? Is it our family? 
Are you calling us to leave everything behind and go? Have you ever asked that question? And I think that every Christian at some point in their life needs to ask this question and to actually be open to whatever the Lord may say. The Lord Jesus himself says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So pray, brothers and sisters, pray. And ask, ask God, is it me, Lord? Is it us? Is it our church? Are we going to send somebody out? We should pray. And the Lord will answer and make it clear. So worship is a global command, and therefore, worship is mission-minded. And speaking of missions, I have to quote John Piper, right? So this is what John Piper says. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in the farthest coastlands of the globe who do not worship the Lord our God. And so we go and we send and we support the work of missions to all so that all the peoples may hear of the salvation of God in Christ. We go, we send, and we support people like the SEALs who are giving their lives to train pastors in Ecuador and plant churches so that more and more indigenous people may hear God's salvation in Christ. So that's the how of worship in verses 1 to 3. We worship God as we go and tell of His salvation among the nations. Worship is mission-minded. The next question we can ask of the, of the text is why? Why worship God? And this takes us to our second point in verses 4 through 9 where we see that worship is God-centered. Worship is God-centered. Notice how verse 3 transitions into verse Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples, for, that is, because, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You see, God's command that we worship Him is not egotistic and selfish. To be sure, if, if anyone else will demand our worship, we will rightly say of that person that they are a self-conceited lunatic. But not God, friends. Not God. He is not for sale. The praises we ascribe to God are in accordance with His greatness. He is great and therefore He is greatly to be praised. Moreover, the Lord, the psalmist says, is to be feared above all gods in verse 4. So to worship God is both delightful and weighty. It includes both singing in verse 1 and fearing here in verse 4. You see it? So that God's greatness or glory, glory, glory includes both His power and His moral beauty or purity. 
or what we call His holiness, power, and purity. God's glory is, is seen first in His power. The power of God is revealed in His marvelous works of salvation, as we saw in verse, verses 1 to 3. And it is also revealed in His work of creation. Look there in verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, the Lord is great because in contrast to these worthless idols who cannot do anything, the Lord made the heavens. The Lord is able to do something while the false gods of the peoples cannot lift one finger. They are worthless. And Psalm 115 says and warns us that those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. To, to those, who, those who trust on worthless idols become dull and incapacitated as they are. But they who wait for the Lord, Isaiah says, shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles because God gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases Strength. So let me ask you, friends, who or what are you trusting in today? What is the thing or event or circumstance that you think, if only I had this or if only that will happen, then I will be okay? Whether it be more money or better relationships, a new job, more vacation time, None of those things can save you, friend. They are good in themselves, but they make horrible saviors. You see, it is the nature of idols to fail you. It is their very nature to fail you. That's what they're good at. They promise much and leave you empty. But it is the power of God to save those who trust in Him and to satisfy their hearts with His glory. So we not only see the Lord's glory displayed in His power, but also in His holy nature and His purity. Look there in verse 6 with me. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. You see, power in itself is not commendable. Simply exercising your power over others without moral virtue or purity does not make you great. It actually makes you a bully or a tyrant. But God, however, exercises His power according to His holy nature, according to His purity. He exercises His power according to His moral beauty so that everything that the Lord does in His power is good and commendable. God's very nature is holy and therefore splendor and majesty emanate from Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. So this is what I mean by saying that worship, to worship God is both delightful and weighty. It is gladness and terror joined together. It is like standing at the edge 
of Mount Albert in the Rocky Mountains or at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Rockies or to the Grand Canyon, but the more you ascend, the smaller you realize you are. Or it is like holding your newborn baby for the first time. Or looking into your bride's eyes as she walks down the aisle. It is the kind of joy that makes you weak in your knees. That, friends, is but a feeble and inadequate attempt to describe both the gravity and the gladness of worship. God is awesome in power and perfect in moral beauty. There is nothing else and no one else like Him. Worship is God-centered because God is the greatest reality and treasure in the universe. In His presence, there is both strength and beauty, power and holiness. In verses 7 to 10, we are called to respond to God's greatness in worship. Look there in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Notice in these verses again that worship means ascribing to God what is already true of Him. Praise is due to God. But if God is already glorious, then why the need to receive praise? If He is already glorious, why do we need to remind Him that He is? Well, friends, God doesn't need to receive praise. He is not dependent on us to ascribe glory to Him. He is glorious in Himself. So the command to ascribe glory to God is not for His sake, but for our own, for our own good. In his reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, Just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. It isn't out of compliment the lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. That the light is incomplete until it is expressed. You see, our joy in God is not complete until we express it with praises that declare His glory and invite others to come and join in our delight. The joy is incomplete until that happens. So you want to grow in joy and love for God? You want to grow? Then go out and tell others about God's glory. That's how you grow, friends. Go out and tell others about the excellencies and glory and strength and holiness of God. And you will grow more satisfied in Him. Your joy will be incomplete until you do that. The psalmist goes on in verse 8 and transitions into verse 9, which is actually the heart of Psalm 96. Look there in verse 8 and 9. Bring an offering and come to His courts Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. But what is this 
splendor of holiness. If verse 9 is the heart of Psalm 96, it is important to understand what this splendor of holiness is. Well, that phrase in verse 8, come into his courts, actually helps us to answer that question. The courts are a reference to the temple, the place where God dwelt under the old covenant. That is why everything in the temple had to be holy or consecrated to God. Everyone who entered the temple had to be purified, including the priests who were directed to wear holy garments. So the temple is holy. Everyone who comes into the temple needs to be holy, including the priests. And the priests, as you remember, wore this dress, uh, this holy garment. And that, friends, holy garments or holy attire is actually a more literal translation of the phrase splendor of holiness in verse 9. So you can say, worship the Lord in holy garments. All that to say that the picture in verse 8 and 9, the picture here is that of priestly worship in the temple. But notice, and this is so wonderful, notice that the priestly ministry envisioned by the psalmist is no longer limited to the Israelite priests from the tribe of Levi. But it is expanded to the families of the peoples in verse 7. It is the nations now who come into the courts of God. The nations have become priests unto God. You see, it is a, it, it's a glorious picture. It is the fulfillment of Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and all the nations shall flow to it. It is what Peter says Christ has accomplished by his blood. He has redeemed a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And it is also what John sees in his heavenly vision when Jesus the Lamb stands in the midst of the crowd and the elders bow down to worship him. And what do the elders do? They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worship is God-centered because God is worthy to receive the praise of all peoples. The Lord is great, and He has redeemed for Himself a royal priesthood from all the nations of the earth that we may worship Him in holiness. It is a priestly, global vision of worship that the psalmist gives us in this text. But if you think that the psalmist is done, he is not, friends. He is not. It gets even better than this. And that brings us to our third and final point in verses 10 to 13, 13 where we see that worship is future-oriented. Worship looks forward to the final consummation of all of God's promises in the age to come. 
the time when all creation becomes the temple of God and His glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. You see the, the shift from verse 9 to verse 10 into this future-looking orientation of worship. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. He shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Worship looks forward. Look there also in verses 11 to 12. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall, then shall all the trees of the forests sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. You see, friends, Psalm 96 gives us a vision of worship that is not only global, but cosmic in its scope. The heavens and the earth and the sea, the forests, the trees, all bow down and clap their hands before the Lord. The whole creation joins in the new song of redemption. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 8 when he says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in hope of being set free from his bondage and corruption. And as we look forward to this redemption, our worship is filled with hope, friends. Worship is faith acting in hope. It is faith looking forward to God's final salvation. You see, that is how you walk by faith. You sing praises to God as an expression of your hope in His future deliverance. So please don't ever minimize what's happening, what's happening here on Sunday mornings. It is the people of God gathered by Christ to sing our faith into songs that look forward to the consummation of all things. Never undermine what happens here on Sunday morning. It is glorious and hopeful. But worship is not for those who are strong in themselves, brothers and sisters, but for those who depend on God's grace for tomorrow. So if you are here this morning and you say, Brother, I... I can't lift up my hands and lift up my voice. It's okay. Worship is not for the strong, but for those who depend on God's grace for tomorrow and even for today. Paul says also in Romans 8 that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope, we are saved. And beloved, the day will come, the day will come, and it's coming soon, when the Lord our God will come, as it says in our text, in verse 13. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. And on that day, His righteousness and faithfulness will finally be seen in their fullness, and we will rejoice in them with endless praise. We now see that day with the eyes of 
faith as if through a mirror, the mirror of Psalm 96. But one day, one day we will see God's salvation with our very eyes. And then our joy will be complete. Until then, though, until then, God's people will continue to gather together every week in God-centered worship to proclaim the great works of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ as a foretaste of the day when the whole creation joins in the song of the redeemed. What a glorious day that will be. What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. We will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.